Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 138th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Douglas Boneparth. Douglas is the founder of Bonefide Wealth, an independent RA based in New York City that manages nearly $80 million of assets under management for 100 client households. What's unique about Douglas, though, is that after starting out in a fairly traditional broker-dealer business model serving affluent retirees, he decided to shift and focus on serving a niche of very high-income millennials, most of whom make half a million to a million dollars per year in income. In this episode, we talk in depth about Douglas's niche of working with ultra-high-income millennials, why he chose to invest so heavily in a younger clientele that's investing in themselves with high student debt loads that often precede their high-income jobs, the way he structures his fee is a combination of a traditional AUM fee plus a flat annual planning fee of $2,000 to $10,000 that's waived once the client reaches half a million of assets under management. Because his clients are so high income, they often reach his asset minimums quite quickly. And how he's been able to be so effective with a media and PR-driven marketing strategy that he's used to attract such high income millennial clients to himself in the first place. We also talk about how Douglas structures his own advisory firm, the reason he decided to transition from being a registered rep with Commonwealth as his broker-dealer to become an independent RAA but stay with Commonwealth to provide his RAA support services, why he decided to stop implementing term insurance policies himself for his clients even though he views life insurance as a critical element of the financial plan. And how he sees the rise of millennial-oriented do-it-yourself technology platforms and financial services as the key to being able to work with and support his own millennial clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Douglas shares his views on why the industry still has such a difficulty attracting millennials to become financial advisors. His own advice for young advisors looking to get started in the advisory business on how to navigate the sales culture that still exists at many large firms that do the bulk of the industry's next-generation hiring and the path he pursued from starting out in his father's advisory practice to eventually deciding to break the traditional industry mold and build the advisory business he wanted to build for himself instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Douglas Boneparth. Welcome, Douglas Boneparth, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. You know, we've we've had a few advisors over the years that have kind of said they they focus on a younger clientele. They are they're focused around millennials and and working with next generation clients. But I know you have really kind of built a focus and gone all in on trying to be an advisor for millennials as a millennial and living that world. And I'm I'm just I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and talk about what that looks like in real life and like what you're building and you know what do you what do you do for young <laughs> people exactly because you know like don't you just put them in a simple index fund and tell them to spend less than they earn and that's that like what's the big deal there's a lot of that but it really comes down to one word and that's relatability i think that 
you know, not to discount the financial planning process and the tools that we have at our disposal to help people with their financial lives. When you really dive into the relationship, you need to be able to facilitate it. And relatability is the key to doing that. And what I had noticed, and I was looking around my classroom when I was doing my MBA part-time at night to work a full day in my, in my practice, go to school. And I was asking myself, okay, how are we legitimately going to make a business here? How are we going to grow your business, Doug? And here I am scratching my head, spending all this money to, to get this you know, graduate education. And the answer was literally right there in front of me. It was the, the students that were around me, my classmates. And the light bulb went off because what I noticed was individuals going through similar situations to me. They were taking out huge amounts of student loan debt, working super, super hard to get ahead in life. And whether they were at a big company to get promoted or they were starting their own businesses, that was it. That, that was it for me. I said, these are the people right here that I'm going to help and work with. This is how I'm going to make my business, which was a huge departure from everything that I was taught and trained to do, which was follow the money. You found traditionally baby boomers or pre-retirees and retirees with assets and one way or another figured out how to do planning and asset management for them. And that's how you made money. And for practically the majority of my career, I, I kept saying to myself, this doesn't make sense from a marketing standpoint, and especially in the, the post-2008 era where you know cold calling is dead, you know, lunch and learns aren't happening. I mean, what what do what do you really expect me to do? Like find a bar with like, you know, 60-year-olds that I'm gonna, you know, and and by the way, capable of doing this. I've done it. It's just not all that fun to me. But what am I gonna do? Like prospect that way? It it made no sense. So that relatability piece, that word right there was, I think, what made the light bulb go off and go all in on servicing millennials. And today, it's mostly older millennials. So we've really refined what that means over the last five, six years. Maybe five, six years ago, you could be a first mover and say, hey, I'm, I'm marketing towards millennials. I think that was, that was pretty big and unique if you were doing that in personal finance. Today, less so for all the right reasons. There's just more younger advisors. And you know this, XY planning is, is a good indication that it's moving yep. in the right way. But six years ago, you know, if you were saying, hey, I'm working with millennials, you know, older advisors, these are either laughed at you or thought you were onto something. So that's a little bit about how going into millennials works. And you, you have to look at what they're dealing with. You know, I know, I know that, again, the, the fundamentals may be the same here, but if you have you know, working spouses commuting into the city or dealing with their city commute, dealing with six figures of student loan debt, trying to make as much money as they can in order to build a life for themselves, you got to know what that's about. And that's very difficult to do when you've been removed from that you know, 20, 30 years, or you know, it's nothing like what it was like when you were in your 20s or 30s. Right. All right. Well, and, and I find there's there's always kind of been a phenomenon this in advisor world that most advisors end up basically working with themselves plus or minus 10 years. Yep. Obviously, there's a few exceptions if you're working with you know very elderly clients who don't necessarily an elderly advisor. But you know, unless you kind of build a specialization somewhere else, like I'm a young advisor who specialized in retirees, most of us end out with a client base that looks like ourselves plus or minus 10 years. And I think a lot of that just comes from as you're saying, like it's it's a it's a relatability thing. Like it's a rapport thing. It's just, it's, you know, 
if you're a young professional building a business living in New York City, it's pretty easy to relate to young professionals who are building a business and career <laughs> exactly. and living in the city. Like, it, you know, you know, you not only you talk about financial planning things, but then, you know, you can chit chat about the same preschool challenges and the same parenting issues and the same neighborhood complaints and like just because you share that with them, right? Because you share a bond. Yeah. That naturally emerges. Well, you need that, right? You need that to address the financial challenges that they're facing, that the generation is facing. You know, you you look to a $1.6 trillion student loan, you know, quote unquote bubble, you look at low wage growth, you look at high cost of housing and transportation, you look at these financial headwinds that we face, and you're able to relate to those challenges and incorporate it into the planning that you're doing, not just to show how the numbers work, but to be able to, again, relate emotionally to what those challenges are like. You know, my wife is a good example. She she went to, and you know, you can, probably a lot of this is made up of, of recession-based stories. You know, my wife and I went to undergrad together. She went to New York City to go to law school, takes out a quarter million dollars in student loans to put herself <laughs> through law school in the city on the promise that, hey, you'll you'll place, you know, yourself at a really good firm. You'll make $160,000. You know, who cares about these loans? It's a good bet. Yeah. And, you know, they show you stats and hold up some cards. And, and sure enough, you know, you, you take that bet. And what happens now is you're knee deep in the recession. No one's hiring. You're left. You're now a bag holder, you know, and yep. lucky for her. And I say this like lucky for her. She she managed to get a job like in the legal profession at pretty much half what was expected, half of what she was planned for. Right. And that, you know, is extraordinarily emotional. You know, you now have a bright young person like so many who thought they were doing the right thing by educating themselves. And now they're a bag holder, right? It's another, now they're knee deep in debt trying to figure out how they're going to get their way out of it. And it was really through her story and her experience. And of course, I would then move to New York and take on more debt to go to grad school. Yep. It's kind of parallel stories here of, of what it looks like bad and what it looks like good. But there it is, you know, that, that, that struggle right there. So I knew if I could target on folks like her who are super smart, super hardworking, you know, we'll make it. Like if you bet on them long term, if you play the long game with them, you're going to do really, really well. And more importantly, look at all the value you can provide. Like that, that's a huge financial challenge, not just on the dealing with the payments and refinancing and how it fits into cash flow, but being, you know, oftentimes a shoulder to cry on, being the emotional support system to realize that there, hey, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It might require sacrifice. It might be harder than you thought it would, but we can get you there. So, I want to come back in a minute deep around this, like, so what value exactly do you provide for them, right? This whole, like, what do you do for millennials mm -hmm. for financial planning? But I, I'm, I'm also just kind of in hearing what you're saying, connecting the dots, even a little back to your, like your advisory from your website, you know, you've got this big tagline on your homepage, you know, hashtag invested you, which to me now makes, the hashtag. makes even more since I was doing the hashtag symbol with my fingers, but you can't see it because it's a podcast. Hashtag invest in you, which now makes more sense, even more sense to me in the context here of like, this is very literally the, you know, the target clientele that you're going after. It's upwardly mobile millennial professionals who are investing in themselves, 
which unfortunately means they're they're looking for jobs with giant piles of student loan debt from grad school. But that's part of a particular profile of someone who has very high earning potential, very strong opportunities to be very good clients, and a unique set of complex needs that crop up if you're a 30-something with an upwardly mobile career, but a ginormous pile of student loan debt from some graduate school program. And you're now trying to figure out how do you put the pieces together and move forward in your life? Like, okay, I invested in me now. Now what am I supposed to do? Yeah. So you really got your finger on the pulse of the tagline. There's a second meaning behind it, which I'll explain in a minute. But as far as investing in yourself, yeah, that that's what we're looking for. Where, you know, I, I call it trajectory. Like I want to be able to look at someone and say, okay, what's this person's trajectory? Are they, are they really going to work for it here? And if so, that's the, you know, without getting into demographics or incomes or anything like that, that's the type of client I'm looking for. I want someone who's willing to work as hard as I am, as hard as the people around me in my life, because they want to achieve the great things in life. They're, they're not going to quit. They're not going to give up. They're not going to let things like recession or multiple six figures and student loan debt get in their way. They will not be denied. But to return to the tagline, there was a second piece of this that was really important to me. And the second meaning is that as a professional, I wanted to literally invest in you before you would ever, ever put a dollar in a brokerage account or a dollar in my pocket to deliver a financial plan. I realized that in order to really work with my generation and the people that I wanted to help, I would need to be the one first to make the move, not the other way around. And that opened the door to really the marketing and creative side that I spent a great deal of time in just creating content. You know, and it started by creating free content for people to have and get the foundation they need. Like, there's so much of this that we can give people before they even need to spend a dollar. Like, I'll give it away for free. I want you to get financial planning ready. Once you're there, come on in. We'll work together. And that way, I could help people today. And yes, it's free, and it's not going to put any money in my pocket. This is the this is the long game that I committed myself to. And it answers the question, how, as a young advisor, how am I going to build a pipeline for growth? That was the single biggest challenge that I think I faced in my career was how am I going to grow organically? And when you're starting in the profession at 19, you know, that was a question literally asking myself from 19 to like 27, like eight years of asking the same question. It's enough to make you go insane. But it got answered. Interesting. So I, I I get it now. There really is kind of this double meaning to the tagline. Like invest in you means for the client. You know, are, are you someone that invests in you? Do you invest in yourself? Because you know, P.S. If you do, you probably have a lot of earning potential and a giant pile of student loan debt, and we're here to help. And that there's a an almost like an, an industry jab version of of invest in you. Like I, Douglas Boneparth, financial advisor, am willing to invest in you. And work with you when, frankly, probably almost no one else will because you're not already coming to the table with a pile of assets and an investment account to roll yeah. over. Yeah, the you know that take that take that account minimums. That's that's what that is. <laughs> take that account minimums. I like that. So so that I think that actually leads to the very next natural question, which is, okay, so if they've got piles of student loan debt and no assets, how exactly do you make money, Douglas? <laughs> <laughs> well, coffee influencership. No, <laughs> I make money through financial planning. 
So that's what's so great about financial planning and it being really the biggest value generator for what planning professionals or financial advising professionals can do. You don't need assets to make a profitable business. If you have the skill set, the knowledge, and the relatability to put that all together using the financial planning process, you can deliver a heck of an amount of value to your client and you can charge for that, just so you know. So, so what, do you, what do you charge for that? I mean, how does the... How does the business model work for you? I'm presuming we're not a we're not an AUM model here. So, how do, how does it work? The firm actually does derive most of its revenue from assets under management. So okay. you'll 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 see that we're we're very much very much a traditional AUM type of practice. That's not to say a good amount of money doesn't come from financial advisory fees. I'd phrase it to you like this. I want to start every relationship with a financial planning first mentality. I, I feel very uncomfortable ever getting into investment management, you know, first without there being planning. It, it does happen, you know, give the clients what they want if that's what they want. But we start with financial planning and that's a flat fee. It's an annual financial planning fee. The range is from 2000 up to 10000 depending on how complex this is. Clearly, you know, if you're knee deep in debt and just starting your career, you're, you're not getting charged a nine or $10,000 financial right. planning fee. But we, we start at 2000 It's going to allow us to work with you and see exactly what's going on in your financial life. From there, we'll see if you wish to add on or participate in asset management services. We are saying goodbye to the insurance business, pulling a Rick Edelman here and going fee only by the end of this year. But we also offered mostly term insurance for this demographic. We viewed that as a value add, not a revenue driver. And those were the kind of two product areas that we deal with. And we do look at investments and insurance as products. And we do think there's limited value to offer there, although we've, we've kind of opened up our investment management offerings into some tactical models. But notwithstanding that, we firmly believe that planning is going to be the largest value generator we can provide a client. And, and just recently in preparing to leave the broker-dealer world and go RIA and fee-only, we realized that we want to give people the opportunity to work with us any way they want from a compensation point of view, whether that's a subscription model, whether that's an AUM model, or just a flat fee, or even hourly. We've worked with clients in all of these, and we can help them figure out what's going to work best based on their needs. What we care most about is that we can ascertain what it is that the client needs, what kind of value we can provide them, and put a fair price on that. So... You kind of raised a couple of questions to me there because you you had we're dropping our insurance business. We went BD to RIA. We've got this flat planning fee, but we're anchored to to a traditional AUM model as well. So let let me start from just the the kind of planning fee and AUM fee business model, and because it sounds like that's sort of the core driver. So you said there's an annual flat planning fee of two thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars a year, but you're ultimately on an AUM model. So how does this work? Like Clients pay their two to ten thousand dollar per year annual planning fee for planning stuff, and then if they have a portfolio and want some portfolio management help, you will also do the AUM, and that's a separate service with a separate fee. And some clients may pay both if they're utilizing both, or they just pay one if they're utilizing one. They will pay both up until reaching right now half a million dollars in assets. Then the financial planning is included every year as part of that. And 
the rationale here is we again feel that the most valuable part of the relationship is financial planning. By the time we're charging on half a million dollars, we're we're not here to nickel and dime. You know, we we want to make sure you're getting that piece, and we do okay. recognize the compression and we do recognize the somewhat dilution. And you know, this has been debated to death, and this doesn't need to be the forum for it. But you know, one percent. What are you getting for it? That conversation will continue to be had. What I don't want ever is for my clients to question or wonder what they're getting for what they're paying. So there's a number of ways to do that. And, and it's mostly through transparency in terms of what they're paying and what they're getting for it. So so you start out with this planning fee plus AUM, you get to a half million dollars, you kind of hit the crossover point, like we'll waive the planning fee at this point because your AUM fee has gotten sizable. Mm-hmm. So, so what does the AUM fee itself then look like since you kind of have to do this you know, under 500K, the AUM fee is really just for investment only services. Over 500K, it's sort of investment plus planning. Like, does that get reflected in the tiering? Do you just have like a flat X percent fee all the way through? Is it graduated? Like, what, is that, what does that fee schedule look like when you've got that kind of crossover? Because I mentioned like a complex client, like a 500K AUM fee could be lower than your $9,000 planning fee. Could be, could be. And it's a great question. So, Traditionally, 1% is going to be what we're charging our clients on the AUM side, and that's going to extend into several millions of dollars before we start to knock that down. So like just it's a flat one basically like from your first dollar to your first few million. Yeah. Don't have separate break points, just straight number. Yeah, it will never. So just did our ADVs, you know, for the RIA and you will see the maximum the firm could ever charge is 1%. We can't even go above that. And then everything from there is pretty much negotiable, but we do believe that clients should receive breakpoints once they start paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in asset management fees. Okay. But but that like that might be a three, four, five million dollar threshold before you you start coming to that conversation. Yep. That that okay. sounds accurate. Okay. So now talk to us about insurance business as well. So you said like you were doing insurance business. More of a value add than than like a profit center, although obviously there is you know some little slice of of term insurance commissions that that do crop up. So how do you think about the I guess both the insurance business when you were doing it and why let it go? Yeah, so the second part is easy. We let it go because we do want to take advantage of being a uh, a fee only practice, and I don't think the CFP board would be too too kind to us taking a commission for insurance and holding ourselves out as fee only. So that, that no, no, not, not, not so much. That's, that's <laughs> kind of like against, against the rules. So, so in essence, just like the business decision, we believe our marketing value by saying we're fee only is worth more than this fairly trivial amount of term insurance commission revenue that we're generating. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, know, look, we think the business trade-off is good. Well, yeah. And I think Rick, Rick Edelman did a really good job of, of, that, that was kind of like a moment I got woke. I was like, oh my God, like he's saying exactly what I think in terms of how we, we approach insurance. Un- un- unfortunately, you know, we don't, I don't think we have the buying, quite have the buying power he does when it comes to, you know, outsourcing it. But yeah. what he said was true. Look, optically speaking, like we, we want to be ahead of the curve. Fee only is, is a better marketing play. Truthfully, I have no problem with fee based for, for the very reason that I'm going to explain, which is we viewed offering insurance to, 
our clients as a big value driver that they wouldn't need to go elsewhere to get something that they could get in-house through us. We could control the process. We could make sure they didn't end up with some permanent policy that they didn't need or get cross-sold on something. And we made their life easy. Anytime you can make life easy for your client, you're, you're going to win up. You're going to pick up those value points. Again, two, you know, two percent of our revenue last year. That that doesn't really move the needle for us from a from a from a compensation point of view. But I know how much clients appreciated us taking that off of their plate. And we had a good partner in Commonwealth, our, our current broker dealer and soon to be technology provider, in terms of their agency, which allowed us to really make a pretty seamless process about getting people through the application process. It's like we had our own, you know, third-party outsourcing vehicle at our broker dealer. So why why not? You know, why not if you can really systematize something that probably for a lot of people is a headache. Yeah. Well, except ultimately you did decide not. So what if only for the marketing value of being able to to use the fee only label. So if that's where you ended out, like what what actually is the plan now for for handling clients insurance needs. You just you just made a very eloquent case for all of this like high value ads serve you know the service value to clients of doing all this work for them so that they don't have to deal with the sometimes crappy traditional insurance application process. Oh, except now we're not doing it. So what like what happens to those clients? Yeah, so we still want to be able to make sure they are getting the protection planning that they need just because we're not the ones now executing on the policies themselves doesn't mean that we can't really do a good job of helping them get get what they need. And, you know, interestingly enough, I needed to buy some additional insurance for myself, primarily for for buy-sell agreements for the practice. I had I wanted to check out this new disruptor here, Ladder, right? I don't know if you have you heard of this one? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, Ladder Life. Yeah, they're they're one of the like New upstart versions, buy your life insurance without needing to go through an agent. You do it straight out on the website and you can like move the coverage amounts up and down over time as your life changes need. Yeah, yeah. Very, very millennial. (laughs) Very millennial. Yeah. So, so as a millennial, what did you think of millennial life insurance? I needed a $2 million policy. I really didn't want to go through underwriting. You know, I've, I've, I've done this many times for my clients and for myself and you're telling me I can, I can in a, you know, snap of my finger, get the policy that I need. I went online, I I put in my information literally within 10 minutes, got exactly what I needed. And I was floored. And that was that? That was that. You know, by the way, like two weeks before that, ironically, I checked out Lemonade. I'm just like, by the way, no, no affiliation with anyone here, but I'd done Lemonade, which is the homeowners and renters insurance version of this, got a millennial disruptive product lines. And you know, as a result of my current homeowner's insurance going up 90% in one year. Ah, yeah, that'll, that'll make you shop. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what are you guys doing here? I'm, I'm about to literally, you know, can you, can you do anything? They're like, no. I'm like, okay, well, bye-bye. And within, again, 10, 15 minutes through their app, you know, managed to drop my insurance premium back down to what it was previously. Yeah. So that got me into the latter life thing. We can bring them there. We're also doing our due diligence on third-party RIA support type companies that are, are getting really good at this. So while my staff runs due diligence and ultimately figures out where we want to bring our business, I like knowing that this latter life thing, as I continue to use it myself, and again, you know, like if you're going to run a portfolio, put your own money in it. If you're going to make a recommendation on a product, like did you run through it yourself? I'll be first dollar in or first insurer in before we before we go tell our clients just to go through some app. But so far, it's worth taking a look at. So far, happy. Well, and, and I know Ladder Life in particular actually is working on a like ladder for advisors 
platform where just you can like you could be even more involved as the advisor. Obviously, you're not underwriting the insurance. You're not getting paid for the insurance. But as you pointed out, there's just a kind of an administrative client handholding and support thing that we often want to do because we want to make sure our clients have a, a good experience and just get the thing they're supposed to get and also don't get sold a thing they're not supposed to get that, you know, this this sort of inexpensive, simple insurance direct to consumer People can buy it directly, and if an advisor wants to facilitate the process, the advisor can facilitate without being the selling agents. To me, is just a, a really interesting new channel that I think now is some insurers are finally starting to realize. Like you, 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 you can have an advisor supported purchase that isn't necessarily an advisor sold policy. The advisor plays a role; they just play a different client side of the table role, but can actually still help make sure that client that clients that need insurance buy insurance. Yeah, that that moves a no brainer for them. I I would very much like to take advantage of you know being able to see my clients' policies if they're going down that road. I think it's even more fascinating that in, in speaking about you know millennials and practices here and bringing up two apps that are very much you know millennial oriented is is if we dive a little deeper, what they're doing with you know the insurance industry as a whole, you know, in the context of Lemonade, they're you know pricing their profits into the premiums as opposed to the way a traditional insurance company works by keeping what it is that they don't pay out, and it kind of makes me feel like they get it from the point of view that again, back to the challenges the generation faces, like you know increasing the costs on things with wages, you know, not really getting much of an uptick here is in a very macro way, a way to kind of solve these financial constraints that we're under. You know, grandma, grandma and grandpa didn't have to deal with a data plan. <laughs> you know, yep. it just seems like around every corner, there's this new monthly expense or subscription that you have to have or literally need to have. Yep. And, you know, income's not really going up in tandem with that. So here comes along these companies looking at the old way of doing it, which really doesn't take into account, you know, these costs, you know, the cost component of it. And they put these products out here that actually help people manage their costs on something that they need. I really dig that. I really dig that. So, so on the insurance side, you've kind of made this shift to say, okay, well, we'll try to still facilitate life insurance. So, you know, we'll, we'll take in a ladder. Maybe we'll sign up for a ladder for advisors. There's a couple of other players now that are trying to be intermediaries to support life insurance for fee-only advisors. You also mentioned kind of transitions from broker-dealer to RIA, but also mentioned that you're working with Commonwealth, which is a broker-dealer. So what's the what what is your status now of broker dealer versus RA versus hybrid? Like it, it sounds sounds complicated. Yeah, it, it are, are we are we in the it's complicated phase or for you and I very straightforward okay. for almost anybody else probably a little complicated but we can iron that out here. You know, there's something to be said about and and I'll, I'll tie it into that in a second. But what's happening right now is taking advantage of the opportunity to transition somewhat seamlessly from the broker-dealer umbrella over to being what we call RIA only. At least that's the platform model that, that Commonwealth refers to it as. Everyone else would just say, hey, it's your, your RIA. Because you can affiliate with them any way you want. You can be just a IAR of their corporate RIA and drop your seven. Or you can just go full-blown RIA and purchase your technology and and back office support and services. So like what you would do in terms of going to like RIA in a box or having to go a la carte for, for your tech stack and everything, you just, you can continue using what you've already been using 
with them and they're and they're pretty much they're a very good technology company they have a good reputation for that so what they did here is for lack of better words cut a deal here or we're forward thinking enough to allow RIA to RIA business so that if you're me right and you're pretty much doing you know fee based business or fee only type business under their BD umbrella you can essentially negative consent all of your accounts at your custodian, in this case, we're talking about national financial services, you can negative consent those accounts. In other words, you don't need to repaper your practice, which I think anyone would normally have to do if you were leaving your broker dealer. You can negative consent your accounts after setting up your registering your, your firm with the various states or the SEC. Oh, interesting. So that makes it much more appealing if you're doing the transition. You can go BD to RIA and not have to repaper. You got it. So you hit the nail on the head there. We're taking advantage. We're probably one of the first few practices at Commonwealth to take advantage of this. We're in the middle of the process right now. We just finished registering in four states that we have five or more clients only to register with the SEC because New York is quirky. If you actually have 25 million in assets, you, you SEC register and notice file with the other states due to the way we kind of stage this from a timing perspective. We, we made it a two-step instead of one, which, which is fine. But nonetheless, you basically go from BD to hybrid, drop hybrid, to RIA and the actual conversion of accounts at NFS, you you know set a date on the calendar. You let them know you want to do this. That's coming up at the end of next month. So the registration with states is done. The conversion will happen at the end of next month, followed by the drop of FINRA licenses or really your seven, and then there you go. You know that we'll drop insurance business and we'll hold ourselves out as a fee only RIA with our investment platform still being the you know, the wrap and associated managed accounts if we choose to use them over at Commonwealth. So it's an RIA to RIA structure. Interesting. So, and to me that like this was fascinating when Commonwealth put the news out. I, I want to say like last fall, I think that this first got announced that Yeah, their national conference in November, you're right. Yeah, that they that they announced, you know, we're we're gonna have an an RIA only version, or I guess essentially they provide like Investment platform support services, the the Commonwealth Technology Stack uh, Advisor three hundred and sixty, but they're not your broker dealer anymore. They're they're kind of they're they're just the they're just the advisor support platform. Is it's like you know take a broker dealer, remove the Finra and the products, and then just take Compliant. what's left. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take what's left, and like that's that's what they'll that's what they'll still provide you. Which which to me is fascinating. Like I've I. You know, I still get the question often, or frankly, more and more these days of like, is the whole broker dealer model dead as as advisors go fee only? And you know, like I've long made the sort of the case, the point. Like, I do think functionally, well, the broker dealer model isn't dead because there's still a very pure portion of like what broker dealers were a hundred years ago, which is like facilitate the public offering of securities for companies that are doing IPOs and facilitate just capital markets transactions as someone buys a stock that someone else sells. Like those raw broker dealer functions still have to exist. Like they're part of capital formation and capital markets. But everything that comes thereafter, which essentially is almost the entire independent broker dealer system, like independent broker dealers are basically intermediaries for product distribution. That's the like yes. that's the regulatory sanctioned role that they play. And advisors are moving out of the product distribution business because we're going into the advice business. So like the whole existential reason for independent broker dealers existing 
to me, basically vanishes over the next 10 to 15 years as advisors shift from product distribution to advice. But so much of what broker-dealers do these days anyways to validate themselves because the product stuff is kind of commoditized. Everybody gets the, you know, everybody can access the same product shelf has all been about their technology, their practice management support, their consulting, their community, like all of the other services that they provide around it. And to me, that's what made Commonwealth Sleep so interesting was they were the kind of the first ones to really very publicly and visibly break ranks and say, yes, you can separate out the bro- the pure broker dealer function from the advisor support functions. And our business is just as relevant as an advisor support system without the broker dealer core. And, you know, they'll, they'll run both and it's not hard to imagine what's going to happen. Like over time, more advisors like you that have less and less commission revenue and more and more RIA revenue at some point say, why am I dealing with the broker dealer? It's this tiny slice. I'm going to go RIA and Commonwealth now as a system that says like, Hey, you want to flip the switch? Just sure. We'll yeah. help you flip the switch. Same tools, same technology, same community, same platform, Nothing changes for you. We'll just you know do a bunch of filing filings to change your FINRA and SEC registrations, and then we'll flip the switch on your accounts. Which to me is just like it's it's a fascinating shift. I mean, it makes me wonder if at some point in ten years we'll see the press release like Commonwealth is spinning off their legacy broker dealer that's so not core to their business anymore that they're just selling it to someone. That's really interesting. Could happen. Don't know. Won't, won't speak for them, yeah, but we'll, I can we'll, say we'll time will tell. But I wouldn't be shocked if you see this model replicated, if possible. I across. would think so. Yeah, it's got to be like what what happens next, and so much so that you know when you look to wirehouses who, you know, see their you know see, see these big teams go to your your high tower, your dynasty. Like, what are they going to do? Just continue to hemorrhage these you know multi billion dollar teams? They'll they'll have to also allow them to carve out their own RIA or IAR under I could I could see more of the the latter than the former, but you know here here's I think a glimpse into the future of how it's going to work at broker dealers and wirehouses. You know, kudos to one, kudos and big thanks to Commonwealth here for for you know being forward thinking on it. And I can tell you, I, I a couple of years ago before they made this announcement, I, I I sat down with them and I said, you know, tell me we all agree which way the wind is blowing here, and everyone's head is nodding as I, I expected it. To, to be. And within short order, wildly within short order, literally within a year, you know, from conference, from national conference to national conference, the announcement comes out and there it was. I, and I bite down and here we are, like literally as I'm talking to you in the middle of a no brainer move for me, at least out of BD into RIA, it would have been a deal breaker if I had a repaper. I'll be very clear about that, at least today. Why? I've done it before. I left Ameriprise for Commonwealth with a former partner of mine back in 2012, I want to say, or 2011. It's been a while. And I, <laughs> you know, back then, whether you know you want to use junior advisor, you know, certainly wasn't the advisor I am today. I certainly didn't have the mass that I had today. So when it came to actually repapering the practice, I, I was the one to do it. <laughs> oh. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This was is a cool story. It was my birthday. It was the middle of Superstorm Sandy. I was living in New York, and I'm sitting in my apartment on my birthday 
with four massive cardboard boxes filled with basically all the all the paperwork that needed to be sticky noted up. And, and, you know, this was again, leaving Ameriprise for Commonwealth. They, yeah, they can only go, by the way, any, any BD can help you a lot by, you know, organizing the paperwork, getting you what you need based on your accounts is that and the other thing. But at the end of the day, you got to put all the sticky notes on there, fill yeah. out the social security. Now, yeah, they're not going to put in client sensitive information. Yep. You gotta, you gotta handle your own PII, your own private Personal identifiable information. And yep. the, and, yeah, and so this is in the middle of basically I'm f- from South Florida where I've basically grown up with hurricanes. So you, the irony is not lost on me that there is a quote unquote hurricane, you know, smacking into New York City, not a hurricane, yep. but sure enough did, did a lot of damage. And here I am sitting in my apartment, pretty much in my pajamas, you know, with food stains all over me because I haven't left the apartment and had to repaper. And I said to myself, and, and so that was the actual like logistics of doing it behind yeah. the scenes. Then there was actually like delivering the paperwork to, you know, UPSing everything out, getting it all back. You know, I remember my partner and I, like, basically, we lost our voices and got really, really exhausted and, and somewhat sick, you know, by the time it was all done. We just ran ourselves into the ground, making sure this transition happened. And, you know, I'll pat myself on the back. We, we retained, like, 96% of our clients and assets, and it was it was a huge success. <laughs> but, but not so pleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I have clients that remember that, and now they're going to get repapered for a second time in a decade. More importantly, I think, is that under the Commonwealth BD structure, and this is another tip of the hat to them, you know, they never told me no. They never told me no from a marketing point of view. They never told me no from anything I wanted to do to grow my practice. And I think that speaks, again, very highly to them. And that's how they operate. They let, again, what can we do for the advisor to help them work the way that they want to? So I, I really had, you know, I had no reason to do it. And, and I still don't. Like, I would still be very, very happy in their, you know, BD world and, and running the business that, I, that I'm currently running. This, again, you know, is the opportunity to, to do it because, you know, the price is right for the business. And more importantly, we'll be able to do a lot more with our clients being our own RIA than we can under a BD umbrella, but no paperwork. Yeah. So I was going to ask, like, the second part of this of just, you sort of said it was a, you know, it was a no-brainer for us to, to drop the BD and go RIA. So, like, what what is the status of the business or what was the evolution of the business that that made it such a no-brainer for you, particularly since you you built it Ameriprise, like you, you built your career in a broker dealer system? What what's changed or or how are you looking at the business to say spend a decade plus in the broker dealer system and now it's not and now it's a no-brainer to drop the broker dealer? Sure. So I do a lot of marketing. And I'm okay with experimenting with marketing. And again, Commonwealth was certainly the least restrictive broker-dealer I've ever come across when it came to putting myself out there, whether that's in the media or on social media, and things that are popping up all the time that we want to experiment with. I think that's an edge for us, right? We're, oh, here's a new piece of technology. Here's a new way to communicate with people. I'm not, I'm not saying we're going on Snapchat or TikTok anytime soon. But me, but what if I wanted to? Yeah. Right? What, what, what if I wanted to push that that envelope? And I know, they know, any compliance office knows, like, oh my God, like, what does this mean from a compliance yeah, like, standpoint? You get this straight. You want to have compliant archiving of messages that self destruct. <laughs> like, I what? remember I had to explain what a Twitter, yeah. <laughs> I had to explain what a Twitter chat was and like I'm talking now I'm like it's like a chat room and this that you know and I'm just like this would be a lot easier if I didn't have to explain anything to you know anyone not for the purposes of doing something shady but something that truly could be the next 
best thing. It is extremely hard to organically grow as any advisor of any age, let alone a young advisor. And when you look to the tools of the trade today, you know, which are basically social media and online and internet marketing, I need to be able to run fast and not break things, but run, run fast and figure things out. And I know that by bringing compliance in-house and, and putting that burden on me, and again, this is not to discredit them. They, they have to answer, they have to control 1,800 advisors from a compliance standpoint. If you're, you know, and it, you scale that up to your Ameriprises and your LPLs where you're talking tens of thousands of advisors, you know, you come more constrained around that. That's why you don't have your custom website. You, you have to have some kind of closed architecture around that. I get it, but... Yeah, geez, as far as as far as growing into the future, that could be the single most business prohibitive, you know, move out there. And I, I yeah. have a very very low tolerance for that. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that uh, compliance to me is one of, is one of those things that essentially like not only doesn't scale as firms get larger, it it, it actually anti scales. It gets worse because you know if you're a chief compliance officer, like. Your job and your backside is on the line to whatever the one biggest idiot in your entire organization could possibly do that violates a compliance rule and gets you in trouble. And so, basically, me. Yeah, you know, cutting edge <laughs> people like you. And so, you end up with this phenomenon that I call LCD compliance, lowest common denominator compliance, that you have to write all your policies and procedures for whatever the one biggest knucklehead in the whole organization might do, which means the larger your firm grows, the more possibilities are you have an idiot who's going to do something really bad and get your chief compliance officer and the firm in a lot of trouble. And so the larger the firm, the more restrictive they tend to make their compliance. The smaller the firm and the, you know, the, the tighter the span of control, the easier it actually is to manage the compliance. Because you know, if, if, if you're in a small firm and you got a personal relationship with the chief compliance officer and they know you and they know that you have a culture of compliance, that you know what you're doing, it's easier for them to be less restrictive and write super stringent rules because there's a level of trust that they know you're going to be a competent professional. So the, I find like the smaller the firm, often the more manageable the compliance is. The larger the firm, the worse it actually gets because the the base gets bigger and the lowest common denominator tends to get lower. Yeah, Commonwealth proved I think proves that that point out there because you know I don't I don't think there's a BD. I, we, <laughs> we do so much marketing that it got to the point where we needed a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more dedicated like ad review <laughs> from them. There was just you're, there's you're just a fat rep. Okay. <laughs> I'm apparently a legend in the compliance department and I'm still not sure for if that's in a good way or a bad way. But as long as they don't kick me out, I'm assuming it's a good thing. But yeah, we're, we we push envelopes in this department all the time, and and that that could be Instagram, that could be you know Twitter chats, that could be virtually anything we're looking for that could help us grow our brand and continue to develop our our funnel online and our presence and all all, all the you know all the terminology from SEO to just you know keyword searching. We go hard on all of this because we know that that's where that's where the next client is going to be won. And we need it. We need it. So that 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 was for growth from a growth perspective. That was part of that kind of no brainer thing from from a selfish thing. The the money factor was better for us. The next dollar in was a more productive dollar. So if you're a business owner looking to you know make money, because I think that's what businesses are supposed to do, it made sense financially, even with dropping the insurance piece. So we we definitely improved margins. 
by doing that. And I didn't think I needed much more motivation than those two things alone, considering the technology, the CRM, and, and all of that would stay the same. And we've worked so closely with compliance for years that, you know, we're, we're, we're just very intimate on, on, on these areas of the business. We're, we're not shy or, or fearful of needing to get what tools we need to do books and records or do capture or even deal with a regulator. And by the way, there's great compliance professionals that we can lean on as consultants to help us along the way. So, you know, what's there to be afraid of? Interesting. So, so kind of the drivers for you, you just even more control of your marketing, notwithstanding, you know, the, the fair nod to Commonwealth, their compliance department was more flexible than many others around there, let you to be creative and push the envelope. You just ultimately wanted to essentially insource your own compliance to your own RIA. You'll live and die by your own sword, but at least you only have to answer to yourself and and not an external compliance officer. And then a piece of just the economics of, I guess, you know, keeping 100% of your revenue as an RIA and paying Commonwealth as a platform was still cheaper than your dollars route through Commonwealth and they give you your payout. Yeah, yeah, those, those are the two biggest factors. The third one I would add to that is, you know, once again, kind of touching on compliance, but, you know, now getting into the investment world a bit here, you know, when you're at a BD, you can't sell away. You know, you, you are prohibited from bringing your clients to really anything that's not covered by their platform. And this is not to say like we're, we're chomping at the bit here to walk our clients to exotic deals and subscriptions, you know, but I, I will say this for the right client. And given that we are, you know, a very high end shop and that, you know, when we look to the top of our book, you know, we're talking about 30 something year olds worth millions of dollars through their hard work and their businesses. A lot of times we need a little bit more than our core portfolios, which primarily are buy and hold low cost ETF and index fund portfolios. You know, we, we, we very much believe that's, that's a commodity and that's what's appropriate for the majority of investors. But when you get to someone who has, you know, a liquid net worth into the millions and can now afford to take a hundred or $200,000 or, you know, anywhere from one to 5% of their investments and, have them look at opportunities that you normally would not be able to look at through primarily your own network. You know, I think what separates us as a firm is, is where we're situated. You know, we're in New York City. We are connected to some of the most fascinating allocators and asset managers <laughs> yes. out there. And I would be absolutely stupid not to, when appropriate, when more than suitable, you know, have my clients take advantage of those opportunities. And would not be able to. I would not be able to do that at a broker dealer, and that is an instant edge when catering to your ultra high net worth millennial. So, so I am curious about kind of the the money factor dynamics. If if you can share, like, how does it work on the RA version of the Commonwealth platform? Like, I know how the BD model works. You know, your revenue pours in the top of their funnel, they pay you their, you know, high eighties or low ninety percent on a on an IBD. So, you know, they take their whatever is six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent slice, you get the rest, and then you, you go and do your thing with your business. So how does it work on the RA platform side? Because at the point they're mostly giving you kind of a technology infrastructure. Most of us are used for paying for tech on flat on like a flat dollar basis, not a not a percentage of revenue or a basis point basis. Like, is it is it still a basis point structure, and it's kind of similar to the BD world was, or do you pay a flat, you know, monthly fee or annual fee to be on their platform, like a platform fee? 
it's all baked into the percent of what's being managed on the platform. Oh, so in essence, like as long as you're as long as you keep a certain amount of dollars in their managed accounts and they make their economics on their managed accounts, like the rest of your technology advisor three sixty stuff is thrown in because the economics already work. It's kind of the advisor equivalent of if you give us enough AUM, the planning is free. So like yeah, <laughs> if you put enough Basically. on our managed accounts, the technology wrapper is free. Yeah, yeah, that 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 in essence is what we're talking about here. So, so you you pay them like a TAMP platform fee? Like, is that kind of functionally what you end out with? Yeah, I, I think that's you know. Let's keep it simple. You know, it's it's going to be a percentage off of that. You know, if you're if you're getting paid a hundred percent, you're going to cough up you know a portion of that one hundred back to them, and part of that is going to go pay the the necessary parties playing the game here, which is NFS and Commonwealth still. And you know, you just basically they'll they'll you know they grid it out for you, and they show you here's what you're currently looking at under our, your current BD structure. Here's what we're pricing under the RIA. Tell us what you think, and it's based on you know how you've grown your business, how much you currently have on the RAP platform. You know, it's, it's it's obviously not so much a negotiation, more or less. Here's what we're we're offering, and you look at that and you make a business decision around it, and you say, okay, wow, for me it was I'm breaking even, and my next dollar is more efficient. You know, say 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 no more. You know, by the way, yeah. with the opportunity to to you know achieve rate points as as you grow. All the money is ahead of quote unquote. All the money is ahead of me. My business is ahead of me. I have no problem at all growing into a situation like that. And and what what's ironic is I kind of made it clear all those years ago, and I said, hey, we, we we should have something like what we're doing right now. I'm like, you're telling me advisors like me or forward thinking advisors wouldn't pay a premium for a turnkey solution to basically RIA here, you know? And I was just like, let's do this. So so you end out with an average fee that I guess is kind of similar to the 5 to 10% of revenue that you might have had on an IBD platform. It's just got a, a different graduated fee, AUM-based fee schedule rate as opposed to being a grid-style total production payout rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I – as, as much as I do like dive into the numbers, you know, in, in in the very beginning to make sure like what I'm looking at here checks out, I, I my mind tends to then immediately like switch over to like, is it a fair deal? Can can I grow? And if so, like this is not really an area I need to spend more more of my time on. Yeah. So, can you paint a little bit of a picture for us of just overall what is the the size of the firm? I don't know if you measure like. By revenue, since you've got a mixture of planning fees and, and AUM, if you just like measure it by AUM or number of clients, like help us understand just overall size of, of practice and client base. Yeah. So from an assets under management perspective, we're knocking on the door of 80 million, which includes one large 401k plan. We're talking, let's use GDC. I think that's a fairly common term. Sure. North, yep. north of 600,000 across roughly 100 households. Average average age of the firm. If you tease out some legacy, <laughs> legacy older clients, which is part of the story sure, a few of few people that came over from the old Ameriprise days. Well, sure. I mean, like I, I almost view them as venture capital. Like they invested in me in my early days, you know, and <laughs> you know they they're the one and the ones that remain. There's some cool stories here, which maybe we'll get into. But the ones that remain are all like, go Doug, go. Like we we, we see what you're doing. We love we love Millennial Doug, but you know, just don't yep. don't forget about us. And it's like I yep. would, I would never. I owe so much to you. 
you'll always get my best. Tease them out. You got an average age, you know, hovering around 40, probably around 38. So it, it's, it's super young, right? And then I could care less about you know, when they come in assets and what they currently have today, income is probably more of a driver for me. You know, it's probably a better indication of, of where they're going in their careers and what they're earning. So that's the whole Henry thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, do you look at that? Like what is average income for clients that you're working with? It's around 400 upwards to 1.2 million. Okay. So you are in a, a, a very high income earning households. Granted, 400k in Manhattan doesn't quite go as far as 400k in some other cities, but but we're but we're yeah, still like yeah, it, it, yeah. you are in a very you are in a very high income kind of clientele. So now I get like you're in the kind of income clientele we're charging them 2k, 5k, 10k. Like you know, charging 10k to someone who's making a million dollars a year is less than one percent of their income. Like that's a that's an impulse purchase as long as they think you're an interesting guy. <laughs> and it kind of breaks down like that sometimes. You know, I've taken in clients who are making eight hundred to you know a million dollars, eight hundred thousand to a million dollars, and they want to do financial planning. They need that organization in their life. They won't let you touch a dollar, and they have no problem cutting a ten thousand dollar check for it. You know, almost almost to the point where you feel like you undercharged. And then you have the complete opposite at times, you know, so nothing really surprises me anymore. I, you know, just, and that's not to be like, I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I haven't seen it all, but you know, if you, if you start, you know, there aren't a lot of advisors aged 34 with 15 years of, of real experience of being licensed and an advisor in the profession. So, you know, a merger done it an acquisition done it, you know, going for now going for, I think this is probably the final thing I could probably do other than sell my own firm, which is go from BD to RIA. So, you know, I kind of just, just kind of take it as, take it as it comes. Interesting. So then I kind of get it as I look at just the, the practice in the aggregate, like GDC are just over 600, roughly a hundred households, like average client is about $6,000 of revenue per client. So you've got a, essentially a $2,000 minimum because that's what the planning fee covers by the time they hit half a million, they switch over from a planning fee to a $5,000 a year AUM fee with planning included. And then they just grow from there. And when you're working with clients that are making literally hundreds of thousands, hundreds, many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, I would imagine you've got a non-trivial number of clients that like they save 50 grand, 100 grand, 200 grand, 300 grand a year in, in cash savings. So investment accounts, even that aren't necessarily large, get pretty darn large pretty quickly. That's where we are now. And, and you know, you, you have to remember six years ago, five years ago, maybe even four years ago, I would have, you know, I would have approached that and answered that very, very differently. And this goes to that whole like growing with your clients. You know, we, we've, I've been making these investments in people since they were in their mid twenties when yeah. <laughs> we're all, we're all kind of worthless yeah. <laughs> and really figuring the world out, our careers out. And all of a sudden, you know, you grow up very fast in, in, taking, you know, coming out of the recession, realizing your career is worth something, finding your, your spouse, having kids, buying homes. You know, I love, I love, love the young thirties because while it's not a, an asset accumulation phase from an investment point of view, it's, it's just this, is there a busier time or a more hectic yeah. time in one's life other than like gearing up for retirement, which pales in 
comparison to maybe not emotionally. Ah, no, really, I think all around pales in the comparison to you know coming of age and settling down. There, it's that's what I love about it. There's there's so much value to offer. I'm a little afraid I'll have less value to offer in the 40s and 50s than I do right now. So you know that's happening right now as far as like the dollar cost averaging and and you know getting clients to commit to taking the cash that they're accumulating through bonuses, through long-term incentives, and putting it towards a more a more efficient allocation or investment portfolio. And you know, I look, you can go quarter to quarter and be like, wow, you know, we're we're DCAing in a hundred grand a, a, a month. Yeah. You know, now it's 150 to what what you know, and I think, you know, that's the part that really tickles me. And and you know, not to be so egotistical about it, but the reason it may come off that way is because you go to the the, the typical advisor in the profession, and it's literally the opposite, right? Well, yeah, the, the average advisory firm is is probably literally a net outflow. Like the you know, not all their clients are retired, but at least a material chunk are. They're withdrawing you know four or five percent a year or something at some reasonable withdrawal rate. So even across the whole client base, they may be at you know one to three percent a year of just net outflows from client spending plus the few that die and that's before you lose any for retention and and like that's the negative outflow hurdle you have to beat every year just to leave your firm treading water whereas you know you got clients that are banking 10 20 50 100 grand a month in contributions right you know across qualified non-qualified and and it's just you know offer value here and then by the way they're just so busy. Like that's another, I guess, part about this demographic and working with, you know, these these really high income, mostly white collar professionals and entrepreneurs in, in New York City and the surrounding areas. Like when they get a minute of free time, it, it's it's going to their kids and their family or, you know, more work, you know, God forbid. Yeah. And they really, really appreciate the fact that you can take a lot of that heavy lifting off their plate, which is why you get very few phone calls generally, you know, like markets almost don't matter. Like they get it. They're too busy accumulating wealth and spending time with their family. But when they do call, you know, you, you, you better pick up the phone. You better respond very quickly because they also know they're, they're paying you very well for that type of service. So that's, that's kind of like, uh, again, relatability, that theme really playing its role here. Cause I'm the same way, you know, my wife and I should probably be relaxing more than we do, but our lives are not allowing for that, whether it's from the pressures of student loan debt and we want to, you know, get our own liabilities off of our plate, or we, we just want to keep you know, achieving and doing our own great things in life. But, you know, in the spirit of this podcast, I, I don't want to, you know, have people be like, wow, really, really charmed life you got there, Doug, as far as, <laughs> you know, being a financial advisor is concerned. There, there's a tremendous amount of pressure that I've been, you know, blowing off over the last five, six years. And I, I alluded to it a second ago, which was, you know, that that almost venture capital component, the older clients that have invested in me and what's starting to happen right now that I'm kind of hitting my rhythm specifically in the type of demographic and client I want to attract and bring into the practice is that doesn't always play well with legacy clients. And, you know, I would tell in the last 12 months, we've lost two $10 million accounts. This is me being very candid. Now, I think at any other point in my career, you know, I'd curl up into a ball under my desk and be like, what just happened here? And my, you know, my wallet certainly would be hurting. But 
the silver lining, if any, first of all, it does hurt. You know, that's that's not a yeah, that's a big client. That's a yeah, yeah, that's never a fun day. <laughs> no, no. You know, wait, wait. What transferred out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and it never. In, no matter how good your relationship is, when when the money goes, you're getting an email, not a, <laughs> an email from your custodian, not an email from your client, let alone a call. I think that's just just the yeah. way it works. It shouldn't, but it does. But nonetheless, you know, I you get over the shock of it. You know, you're at, you're at a stage in your career and you understand what's going on well enough and you're com- hopefully confident enough to, to get over the shock of that and really try and analyze what what took place there. You know, you're because you, otherwise you're 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 going to become paralyzed, you know, it'll be paralysis. Yeah, paranoid or paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. And and for me it was okay, was it me? You know, first question, what did I do wrong? You know, did 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 I say something? Did I offend someone? Did I not perform on the invest was it about investments at the end of the day like i literally helped someone you know get to retirement how, how are they not my client for life <laughs> you yeah. know and yep. sure enough the the answer was come back to marketing come back to branding and you have to take you know put yourself aside for a second and and, and be objective and say okay Doug, you, no matter how good you are, no matter how good you thought that relationship was, here it is again, relatability. What do you know about retire, you know, actually retiring? What do you know about going to the tennis court with your fellow retirees from your same company with all the same stories talking about that stock your broker literally the stock your broker sold all of you cuz you all go to the same person locally in town right that looks yep. like that looks like you talks like you gets you right and what are you going to do say well you know you're the, the the three other people you're playing tennis with they're talking about that and you say yeah i use this 34 year old guy in manhattan that's you know friends with my kids so so you know it's like <laughs> yeah that's not that's not a good look one well, to me it just it 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 gets back to you when when people focus their businesses into some kind of niche or specialization area that they get known like i have to get i have to still get these questions like you know, does it doesn't mean you have to stop taking clients outside of your niche and and strictly speaking like no i don't think it has to but what happens is the kind of effect that you that you're seeing here like you can keep your non-niche clients but look at some point they realize they're not a great fit for you there are other people that are more directly targeting them you can try to make yourself more relevant to them, but then at some point you're taking away the time to market to the actual people you wanted to target because you're now distracted by the old non non niche clients that aren't a good fit. Yeah. And if you look at this over time, like you know, if you're going to bleed off some clients that don't fit your niche, at the end of the day, would you like to put more time into holding on to a client who's not a good fit, anyways, or trying to get the next client? who's a great fit, fits your niche, and is exponentially more likely to refer you to other people, right? Because your next high-income millennial client is going to be like, hey, you should work with Doug. He works with people like us. Your boomer client goes out to the Taz courts and like- Never refers. Wait, who do you guys work with? Yeah, you're you're never getting the referral. You should work with my advisor. He's just like your son. You'd really like him. Like You should work with our our advisor. He's like your grandson. You'd really like him. Like Kind of lose your credibility out. Yeah, you're not not looking real sharp on that one. But again, back to the boomer clients that- you know, are extraordinarily supportive. It's like one, it's either one or the other. There's almost no in between, you know? It's yeah. Like, either, either they're, they're into, as you put it, like either they're into millennial dog, you know, just as long as you take care of us, knock yourself out, man. Or 
they just feel you becoming rest, less relevant and they start looking at the you. the irony is for for those who typically leave their kids are also clients <laughs> so if you want to be you know if you want to if you want to put your you know puff out your chest and 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 be you know egotistical or cynical about it and be like whatever I'll see that money again <laughs> I'll get the money eventually I'm just going to wait a little longer and they kind of they kind of know that though which is why they kind of like don't care that they're leaving you they like they're like oh whatever you know like you know I was here for you and but there's also a point to be to be made there, which is like I deep, deep down inside, like, oh, a great deal of gratitude for the fact that they've helped me get where I am. How, how can you really feel all that bad? Yeah. Yeah. OK. It's a really sad day. But like you look back over the last four or five years, I played a long game, like a really difficult long game that that definitely could not have worked out for me. Yeah. I and mean, I would have to pivot to something else inside of wealth management. But they were there. They backed me. They got me here to where I could withstand that departure. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm over grieving. I'm over being upset. I'm, I'm just basically grateful. And so do you, do you ever worry or feel any guilt of like, they staked my business early on so that I could grow a business that doesn't serve them? <laughs> no. Not particularly because no, no, because when I branded, so I, you know, I had to reconcile that years ago when I broke away from my previous partner and launched Bonafide Wealth. I think at the top of my mind was, oh my God, what am I going to say to, you know, any client over the age of let's say 50, like this is really where like my relationship is going to be put to the test because it is now, you know, because your former business partner was the, the, the older gray hair that validated this. He was actually quite young. He was only 10 years older than he was actually only 10 years older than me, but his practice was very much like most practices out there, you know, and, and he was an acquirer, you know, and, you know, I think, in the Ameriprise channel, you know, okay. ha- having grown up in that channel, you, you did a lot of, you know, their bread and butter is pre-retirees and retirees. So, you know, any, anyone coming through those channels likely has a book and this is just anyone really in the broker dealer space probably has a book with an average age north of 55. But, you know, I leave doing this millennial thing. Most of my, cl- you know, a lot of my clients at that particular time are, are definitely not millennials. And you're going to have to explain to them what this marketing is all about. And my fear was, I'm going to see exodus. That didn't happen. But I'm seeing it. I'm seeing at least those two cases that I just talked about happen. And it really hasn't. It really hasn't. So it's it's not an exodus. It's a bleed. With the good news that as long as you're focusing in your new niche, or just focusing more deeply well, like you, you, you grow faster with the new clients than you bleed the old ones. So maybe it's a little bit of a transition. But then at some point you blood what you're going to bleed, and it's all pure growth from there. It's inevitable. I think. Well, that that I guess I I didn't do a good job explaining that. You know, that was the that's where all of my anxiety comes from, and still exists since inception of the firm, and even before then. As I, you know, growing up in South Florida and Boca Raton has really given me a unique skill set of you know schmoozing very well with affluent older people and i was you know and sure enough my book was kind of laden with these these ultra high net worth retirees one way or the other you know our paths crossed either from my roots or or from connections and family and things like that and when you're you know 20 not you know when you're 30 years old and you know have a lot of assets in the door and it's very concentrated at the top end, you know, you, you, you meet, and you're building a family for yourself. This is, so this is where it gets real and you're buying a home and you're, you're definitely dealing with your own multiple six figures of student loan debt from your own education. And you're at the tail end of an economy, you know, of an economic cycle or so, or so we think. Yeah. And you're like, and, you know, and your origin story is basically 2008. 
sleeping well at night is a premium because you're thinking, what if my number one or number two client leaves or dies and simultaneously we get smacked, you know, with the next recession? Um, am I going to be able to pay my mortgage? Like, you know, that's scary. That's just straight up scary. And you work like hell to mitigate that as much as possible. And you're playing it, but you're mitigating it with a long game. You need time. You're trying to buy as much time. Talk about the basically the story of any young advisor is purchasing enough time to grow. Just because I had, you know, at that point, 12, 13 years of experience and, and a really good edge, I was not absolved from the same mind-numbing anxiety around growth that any young advisor has. I just think my stakes are maybe higher given wanting to move forward in my life and have kids and all of that stuff. So it hasn't been all, you know, rainbows and gumdrops. It is, you know, for me simplified as could we hit a recession? Could my number one client die? And will I still be in business? Right. And I think maybe in the last six months to 12 months, I can say that with confidence. Yes, it, it, it will suck. Like that will be absolutely well, it's going to suck for everyone. We hit the next yeah. recession, probably more so even than any 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 one recession we've had in the past, just because we're you know we're ten plus years into the AUM model from the last recession. So for most firms, they have more than doubled since the last recession. I mean, firms like yours, you went from zero to six hundred of GDC and eighty million in in the span of one bull market cycle. And so when the next recession comes, like our businesses are just so much larger than they were in the past, which means, you know, even the same percentage decline is a lot more revenue that vanishes and a lot more bottom line profits that vanish. And that's, you know, ultimately, I mean, that's just part of the cycle of the business, right? you all businesses have to deal with the, with the business cycle, but you know, the average firm will just feel a lot more pain in the next recession than the last one. Cause we've just grown for 10 years. So there's a lot more AUM dollars at stake. It's interesting you say that. I I often think about, you know, what that would look and feel like given, you know, I think again another another edge in being a young advisor here is, you know, if you've if you started your firm 5, 6, even 7 years ago, you you've only really known up with, yeah. with the exception of a few years which really weren't all that bad on the down on the down joke like I, I came to New York, like I got off the airplane at JFK when I when I left my father's practice and took what he gave me to to go work in New York City for another practice. Like I think when I came, got off the airplane, like Lehman collapsed. So, you know, <laughs> welcome to New York. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So it was drinking from the fire hose from day one, and I think that's made me you know pretty thick skinned as far as how I view view that. I think there'll be a lot of you know both young advisors in for a rude awakening in terms of how to deal deal with that. From their own pocketbooks to their clients' pocketbooks, and to your point, older, more mature practices who have you know particular you know more more older clientele. So now assets are going down, and they still need to withdraw those assets. That's a double whammy. I am maybe being overly optimistic, but somewhat optimistic in in, in a negative environment by saying, well, as long as my clients don't lose their job. You know, and I can pay my bills, meaning, okay, so AUM went down 20%, you know, whatever. You know, yep. again, I think it's more like as long as my clients are still making money, we'll come out of this. We're, we're, we're young. Like, we'll see this again. Like, this ain't no thing. If they lose their job, that is the thing that. Yeah, that's the death note because now you're going to withdraw. Now you're going to start working backwards exponentially from a financial perspective. Yeah, oh, which is just an interesting framing, right? The the idea that like your your advisory firm is more at risk to unemployment than market declines. Absolutely, absolutely. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. You don't quite realize how much all of the rest of the firms out there are 
almost entirely tied to the market declines, not the unemployment. Yeah, and the more, and by the way, the more you shift, and the more we, so we we're mitigating our risks two two ways. And the first way is by you know continuing to bring in younger clients to hedge the the older top heavy clients, of which there there really is only one at this point. So as much as it was painful to watch two large legacy clients leave, like we're we're standing here with a with a rather large AUM doing really well, and they're gone. I mean, we would be at a hundred plus, you know. Now, but you really can't and should not think like that. You think forward, you think growth. So that that's a big relief. But you, st- I, I, you know, there, there's a part of me that still always wants there to be that kind of pressure on me. You know, there's always a healthy amount of anxiety that keeps me. I don't think I can escape that. And again, that's probably more for my therapist than you. So, so talk to us a bit about the marketing side of things. As you said, like. You like to be a little cutting edge, had a lovely personal relationship with the Commonwealth clients, yeah. compliance department. So just, just talk to us a bit about the the marketing. And I mean, you've just sort of thrown out there like, you know, I, you know, we're working with a lot of these clients that make anywhere from 400000 to $1.2 million of income, which is kind of a ginormous amount of income and, and not something a lot of people see anywhere, even or never mind New York City standards. And I get a part of it is, there is a density of city and density of wealth in New York City that at least makes a few more of those people around within a stone's throw distance. But like, how do you actually get clients who are making a million dollars a year? Like, where do you find these ultra, ultra high income millennials and then convince them to do business with you? What does that look like? It's been five years of nonstop getting your name out there in almost any medium possible and figuring out how to do that right and how to do it with systems applied to it. So whether that's a, an internet marketing funnel using SEO and keywords or just being literally everywhere. So I can, I can kind of rely on, I have a degree in public relations, believe it or not. And I never in the beginning thought I'd, I'd really be leveraging that to the extent that I am, but it was from, at least from an academic perspective indoctrinated in me to really understand how relationships in media work. So the first thing I did was like, okay, if we can create the credibility here, if, if we can, you know, if we can create an image and a brand that, that basically, you know, exudes this credibility for who it is we want to cater to, we might give ourselves an advantage to actually approach some of these people and not just be a dime a dozen advisor, like say, hey, look, this, this is, I never wanted to, like, if you have to sell yourself, you're probably doing it wrong. Like if, if your reputation and, you know, it's a bold statement. If, if you have to sell yourself, you're doing it wrong. Well, I think when it comes to going up channel like that, like if I have to do a lot of convincing out of my own mouth, let, or I, you can either do that, and and there are people who are fantastic at it. I'm pretty sure I, I, <laughs> I could talk my way into it. I think what's more powerful and what speaks more volumes is when you have the credibility through appearances on television, through your accolades, awards, leadership positions, and the press that you can develop around who you are and who you want to work with. That speaks louder. That speaks louder. And and you can put that out there. You can put that out there through social media. You can put it right on your website. You can stick it in a brochure. There is no shortage of delivery mechanisms in which you can show that kind of credibility and start to attract the type of client that you want. I'm making it sound very easy. It is not easy. It's very hard. But I mean, functionally, it's kind of a, a credibility marketing strategy that says, you know, the 
mean, right or wrong, people who have gotten media exposure, you know, the media creates a very strong implied credibility that people often, consumers often pick up on. So if you've got a huge amount of media exposure, it brings an immense amount of credibility. You can then talk about or share your media exposure, which then gets your credibility out there to anybody that's seeing your marketing and messaging. And what it means is by the time they show up to you, they they are already convinced that you must be a credible expert and your reputation precedes you. Hopefully then when they meet you, you can actually, you know, validate that view for them. And yeah, obviously you got to do something to support it and not yes. and not drop the ball. But it means they already they already come in expecting you're a credible professional that they should be working with. You just have to close the deal, which is very different than, you know, I'm coming in to meet with you as one of three advisors that I'm talking to. Tell me about what you do and why I should work with you. Yeah, you said that very well. At least these days, I seldomly like verbally have to talk about like my bona fides and, you know, like it's, by the way, it's, 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 I actually find that uncomfortable, you know, number one, because it's out there, like it's, it's right on the website. Like I would assume most people are, are, that's the first place they go to learn. You know, I want people to come to the website, be like, okay, this is what he does. Let me go learn about him and click like, you know, my, the, the team or bio page. Like that's literally the way I want. And then contact us. Like, I, I almost don't even want them going anyway. If I had to show you my funnel, it'd be, all right, I found, you know, getting found is the hardest part, right? So I, fa- I found him. Cool site. Let me see what he's saying about himself. I'm ready to schedule an appointment. And then what you said right there is super accurate. Don't drop the ball. Like, now you're getting a chance to step up to the plate. You know, you're either going to strike out or, you know, hit a home run. And the home run is a new client in your firm. And I've been building out that, you know, that funnel, that system for five years straight now. And what it looks like is four to 500 features, appearances, quotes, TV, podcasts, you name it, across a hundred different outlets. That's all. And that's all third party, right? That's all other people having you on or, or using you. That doesn't even account the first party content you're creating through your own videos, your own blog, your own whatever it is you're doing, your own website, your own book you've authored. If I were to add up all the all the hours that have gone into that, it's probably rivaling the amount of time that's actually gone into, you know, administration operations and client service, which kind of says, hey, should you be worried about capacity constraints? And yeah, the answer is yes. We're just not there yet. And so so talk to us about what what you found in particular that that works or that doesn't work. I'm going to imagine across you know hundreds of media interactions and as you've said like try, trying all these different social media platforms and and marketing strategies and marketing funnels and the rest like what what are you finding either that that seems to actually work in the advisor world or just that you know doesn't work great theory doesn't hold up in practice. Awesome question. I try and, by the way, selfishly plug the the blog here. I try and write about a lot of marketing in in my posts. It's you know you write about the things you're most passionate about. But what works? Being authentic works. What doesn't work? Getting a quote or having a feature of some kind and thinking that in of itself is going to really do anything. It's not like. I'm glad you got quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Your phone is not going to ring. Your your inbox is not going to get an email. Like you need to actually take these opportunities, at least when it comes to third party content, and plug it into a marketing system of some kind that you need to build. And I've I've laid that out in in, in a post before. 
that is that is the winning ticket and and you need to do that over and over and over and over and over again you need to do like a b testing for days until you figure out what works here what doesn't work is thinking anything you do is a lock you know no matter how creative or how good you think a, p- a particular piece is i think what works is being unafraid to fail and accepting failure or at least just assuming that probably 80% of what you do create if you are creating content is probably going to stink <laughs> you know and if and by the way if 20% of what you're making is awesome that that's that's massive like yeah. I, I think i think people need to really you know just embrace failure and and putting out a video that makes them cringe when they're watching themselves good so the next one won't you know be as bad as that you you would hope and like you make an interesting point there of saying if if 20% of what you make is awesome that's great I think for a lot of advisors, part of the challenge and fear to this is like, you know, I write an article, I put a thing out there and and I, I guess not even just that it fails. Like, okay, I could try a thing and have it not work. But if I try a thing and it sucks, like this actually reflects badly on me. Like what if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on video and I flub up the lines and, and what I'm saying and like I don't come across as professional or, you know, I, I try to be authentic and I share too much and it gets a little weird. Like, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on us of, as advisors, like always be professional, appear professional. You have to be credible because you want to work with people that have lots of money. And like it, it creates all this pressure of like, I think if you ask most advisors, you would, would you be okay if 5% of the things that you put out for marketing didn't necessarily reflect well on you? That would scare the crap out of most people. And here you are like, oh, actually an 80% rate is okay because only 20% needs to be awesome. And that's actually pretty good. I think there's a big difference and I'll I'll walk I'll walk it back a little bit here the the get over yourself and then I'll bring that right back so let me let me right. clarify. So so we're going to we're going to build them back up and then we're going to tear them down again. Okay, got you it. You got it. So <laughs> I think there's a big difference between looking like a fool and embarrassing yourself and putting out a piece of content that, you know, is going to move the meter or have an impact. Like okay. let's, let's let's kind of reframe that. Like 80% doesn't do anything it also doesn't harm it also doesn't reflect poorly on you right like like, oh you didn't get your line right you looked a little awkward nobody cares and and quite frankly probably no one's going to see that or or pay attention to it you know you're your you're your own worst critic right so so a lot of it is in your mind so true i i'll admit even from our end because it 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 came up as a question with with an advisor the other day that was kind of asking me about you like getting comfortable even with this podcast and and you know, the self-editing that we have to do. And, and I had to admit after, so we're on episode 138 now, I have not listened to my own podcast since episode three. I literally cannot hear myself talk on the podcast without self-editing to the point that it makes me nuts. And I had to just stop listening to them. And like, I listened to the first few just to make sure I was at least reasonably comfortable that we were putting out something that was kind of coming out the way that I expected. And then... I ask for feedback from a lot of others, people I trust who will tell me if it's good, if it's good, and tell me that it's bad, if it's bad. So like I do have a feedback mechanism, but I found I was completely incapable of viewing my own work and and being effectively objective about whether it was going to be useful or good to anyone or not. Like all I could see is my own flaws and it had nothing to do with the guests. Right. I was like what the guests said. I couldn't hear myself and my portion. Because we're just so we're so self-critical that the only way I keep my sanity was to stop stop listening to my own episodes and find a group of other people who would give me the feedback that I needed. 
I think that's I think that's very typical, certainly of those who've gotten very good at creating content across almost any any medium. There there are often times where I feel the same way. I don't I don't want to listen. For me, it's more listen than watch. I'm 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 very interested in seeing you know like what my body movement looked like on video because I, I want to get better at it. I think that's yes. the motivation. I I want to get better. I, I want to get real good at that. Yep, I did some of that for self feedback early on, and I've done that on the video end as well and speaking end, but. I agree with audio. I agree. That's where like, oh my God, I said like, like 40 times at the beginning of a sentence, I'm turning this off. I can't, I can't Mm -hmm. do it, you know, but I think that this is a good problem to have simply because what you're describing, because it means you've done this enough that you've gotten to a point where like you're, you kind of like have earned the right to not listen to yourself. Like in the very beginning, like you need to, like, you don't know what you're doing. I had to for the first few just to make sure it was actually working the way it was, you know, expected and yeah, like I had to start there. So with with that being said, you know, it's it's not about, you know, embarrassing yourself or 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 looking bad. I think it's about, you know, creating things or 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 contributing in a way that, you know, doesn't have you take any steps backwards but gives you the opportunity to do better on the next round. And, you know, I was just on Yahoo Finance yesterday or the day before. And I, before these types of live, like that's live. So it immediately goes up on the, you know, nervous scale of like, yep. you, you got to get this one right. Oh you my know, God. There, yep. this, is, this is not recorded video, which now you have, when you're doing recorded, you know, I think if you don't do enough of them, you're, you're just nervous the entire time, but you fail to realize like you can say cut, you know, you can be like, let me do that again. And you you get good enough to where like, you don't even say that you just like stop and start and let them cut that. They know what they're, they're the professional from the editing standpoint, just give them, give them what they need and try and shape the best version of it. You don't get that luxury on anything you do that's live. And you know, I think the best way, at least when it comes to live appearances or, or doing anything where you're feeling nervous, I think the best way to know that you're really coming into your own is when, number one, when you feel that feeling of being nervous, it's, by the way, it's always going to be there. If it's not there, I think something's very wrong. You might be dead. And then two is if you then smile after you feel it, like, hello, friend, like there, there you are. Hello, fear. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ah, I remember you. And it takes on kind of a whole new thing. Yeah, you're probably going to be very nervous in the very beginning, even ta- even so much as talking to a reporter. But my best advice is if, if you're a good professional, you, you already know what not to say. You know, you're not going to do something stupid and say, like, go buy X, Y, Z at, you know, Y dollars. Like, yeah. you just, like re- really? that <laughs> You did that? Wow. You know, so I'll bring it back. Get over yourself. You know, you got, you got it. You can do it. I think you make an interesting point as well, though, that, that ultimately like the key to this, if you actually want the, you know, the ROI as it were on the, on the, the media activity, like it's not enough to just get out there, be seen, get quoted and, you know, and, and wait for the phone to ring. Like the, the leverage from this comes when you do the stuff that gets you out there and gets you some visibility and and then you actually take the steps and the effort to to market it, to communicate it, to put it out there. I, I guess in essence, like to to toot your own horn, yeah. and that that's a that's a part of the process. So I don't. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I think for some advisors, the not only is sometimes a hard just to to do the stuff and put yourself out there, and you know the nervousness and the fear and the rest, but then it feels 
weird or even worse to to try to trumpet it to toot your own horn you know a lot of us are kind of taught not to do that yeah well i was reading someone's tweet the other day they were going through compensation models this that and the other thing and how they felt like they were you know when they were working as an advisor in this capacity they felt compelled to sell the firm when they were an advisor in this capacity they felt the obligation to sell the product and then now they finally feel like here i am I, I don't need to do any of that and i'm just like no matter where you are no matter what you're doing if you're if you're in a service business aren't we all just selling ourselves yeah so like this this notion so my first question is would you like to grow organically <laughs> because if the if the answer is yes like if if you want to do what i call the biggest magic trick in personal finance we've really started to like get into this i'm just going to grow by acquisition kind of mentality here and and you know you got you get focus financial over there doing that you got you got, you got yep. dynasty and high tower by the way very legitimate way to to grow one's business i personally am not why would i be a fan of that it makes no sense look at what's being sold and yep. that's not what i want to buy so it's okay if you want to do that and deal with those headaches and growing like that but if you want to grow organically which i would imagine a lot of people do and you don't want to just be like everyone else who says i grow through referrals from my clients you know I have a great referral marketing system. I'm going to pat you on the back and probably walk away. Word of mouth. Yeah, look, everyone everyone wants referrals and wants their name to be spread around the people they love by great yeah. word of mouth. But if you like, really if you really want to grow organically, how on earth can you say, I don't want to go out there and sell myself? How do you not sit down and devise a marketing system that you can stick to and get uncomfortable with until you are comfortable? So for me, it's just a matter of, if that's what you want, there's no other alternative. Yeah, like there, there's there just isn't. You can't just say, "Oh, I'm just going to do SEO." No, that needs to be matched with social media. It needs to be matched with content to put through the distribution channels. People, those keywords aren't going to show up on their own. You either got to make that content yourself through your blog, through your website, through whatever it is, through your medium, whatever it is, or someone's going to make it for you. Ideally, you want both. Okay, and then you're going to start to integrate all these things together. Well, what other cog can I put in my marketing machine? I'm going to author a book. Okay, go do that. You know, is it going to be an outstanding book? Probably not. But that's not the game you're playing. And I, by the way, I hope it's a wonderful book. Yeah. If you have an amazing story to tell. But this is personal finance. You know, it's few and far between a lot of times. Yeah. Well, and and even there's a lot of systems out there that can help you create the book now as well, which I find is is not often appreciated in our advisor world. There was a, an advisor, you know, who actually did a, a book and and like made the interesting statement, you know, you 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 don't have to be a writer to be an author. <laughs> he was like, look, it's all my ideas. I put all this stuff out there. And then and then I got a writer and editor who helped me turn all the things in my head and all the stuff that I can say into just a version that was written on the page. Like it's my words, it's my thoughts, it's my concepts. Like you can get a you can get a writer to help make sure it looks pretty in a book. Yeah, that that person was called my wife when we wrote our book yeah. together. And also the stories were obviously the story we were putting out there, but we, you know, we went about that process real quick is, you know, we we had a story to tell, we wanted to tell it. Her and I both knew how good it would be in the context of marketing the business. It instantly became a business card. Our goal was to sell, you know, like if we could sell a thousand, our egos would be good. I think we were more just like, oh my God, we wrote a book together and didn't get divorced or kill each other. That's accomplishment of itself. That's a check. <laughs> yeah. 
bingo and our kids, our kids will be proud and they'll see it and all of this stuff. And, you know, I think we set our expectations pretty reasonably around that. So we, we exceeded those expectations, whether it was through book sales or just through clients coming in or being able to give that book to a prospect when they left the office, like that one thing, that one body of work outside of all of the internet stuff and going on podcasts and talking about it and opening all the doors that you were you know, kind of doing anyways, that was just a whole arsenal of things that was going to benefit this marketing machine to grow organic. So you got to do these things if that's how you want to grow. And there's so many advisors on that XY platform I keep hearing about that blow me away, you know, that I won't lie to you, Michael, I'm, I'm looking through them to say, all right, what are they doing that I'm not? Because you got hundreds of them building brands and doing new cool things. Like I'm, I'm feeling I'm old millennial. You got young millennials doing stuff like, I want that. Yeah. Well, and that to me is part of the interesting effect that comes as well with what you've done in building towards a niche that suddenly as you as you get clearer on your target clientele, you can get even clearer on like, well, you didn't just write a book. You wrote a book called The Millennial Money Fix. So like, guess who picks that up? Like the exact people who you want to reach because it literally has millennial in the title and you're trying to reach millennials. Like that, that's part of the the point to me that that I feel like the the more the more niche firms tend to be, the more I tend to see them out there marketing. And I think part of that is because most of us get stuck in this analysis paralysis trap where, okay, I hear you, Douglas, I want to do some marketing, but like, I don't know where to start. And the problem is actually, well, you, you don't know where to start because you don't know who you're going after. And so if you're just trying to go after like anyone on the planet, it's really hard to figure out what on earth you're going to do that's going to stand out. You can throw some money at it, but like, you're not going to get results because you're not differentiated from nine bajillion other marketing messages we we see every day. And then the fact that we so often struggle with marketing because we don't have a clear target of who we're going after is to me why we end out with so many firms that are are now looking at inorganic growth through acquisitions or waiting for referrals to show up. That to me, like, well, if you're not going to devise a marketing system. Of course, you have to rely on acquisitions or referrals. That's all that's left when you don't market. Like that's that's not necessarily a best practice. That's the only practice that's left if you're not marketing. Yeah, and and that's my point. You know, again, you you have very little recourse here, very little alternatives outside of inorganic growth and and relying on your existing book of business and network. And and I don't think you know if you're willing. I'm all about long games. I've said that many times here on the call. If you're willing you know, to get uncomfortable, play this game. And and I get it. Most advisors, you know, and, and I'm very fortunate that I, I, I'm okay and comfortable with putting myself out there and embarrassing myself if worst case scenario. I get it. Most advisors are, I think, inherently not good at these things. So here's a tip. You yourself don't need to be good, but maybe you can find someone who is and also understands your brand. And you don't need to spend a lot of money doing it. You, you can still design a marketing system and find people to ex- help help you execute on that. I just think people get to your point, you know, kind of get in their own heads here like, oh, I'm not good at that. It's it's the same thing over anything you're afraid of doing. Oh, I'm not going to be good at that. I, I, I just I'm just going to go back to what I'm comfortable doing. Well, how's that working out for you if you keep saying to yourself, I want to grow, I want to grow. Right. So, so from your own perspective now, being you 10 plus years in, in your career, what surprised you the most about trying to build an advisory business? Wow, that's a good one. That I would actually be able to build it in a way that I wanted to, that I could actually get out from 
what seemed to be a lot of conformity and that there's this one way to do it and you know you follow the money and you know you eat what you kill and it is really kind of that rebellion against the old school thinking mm. where you know I was right at the verge of it you know there are very few of us that could go back 6 years now and say like no I'm not going to do that you know and how to endure being ridiculed or looked at funny at conference. I mean, this is real. This is real. You know, from 19, yeah. I had the, the looks I would get, you know, at, at a regional conference when I'm trying to pick up some CE credits. Like, there were people literally like grilling you, you know, just, just for being like, what are you doing here? I was like, <laughs> like, why don't you help me? Like, I'm, I'm clearly not like everybody in this room. It, it still happens today which is wild. But yeah, the fact that I could enter a pretty long-standing, you know, profession and you know, shake it up a lot. And so what what led to that? Like what what made it happen? What made it work? Was it just damn it, I'm going to ignore all of them and do it anyways and holy crap it turned out to work? Was there a certain turning point for you? I had set goals for myself. I fell in love with a wonderful woman. I wanted a life for myself. I didn't want to necessarily, in watching what happened in the recession, I didn't want a lot of things that I saw both in the profession and outside of it to happen to me. Mm. And with a you know splash of fear, motivation, a decent brain in my head, and and you know being just hopefully a nice guy, I wanted to be able to take all of these things and, and make the great things in life happened for me. I wasn't going to be denied of that. Also a little bit of a habitual envelope pusher and line stepper. So (laughs) as you may know, and all of those things come together to have allowed me to take the liberties that I did in this profession and make a name for myself. And, you know, now I can tell you that this is the most fun I've ever had in my career. It only took 14 years. So, so then along that journey, what was the what was the low point for you? No offense to the to, to my father here, graduating from college, moving back home and working in the family business. Because he, he was he was an advisor in the business as well. Yeah, yeah. So I worked in I worked in my father's practice for the first four years of my career, basically through college. So we didn't really get into it, but Essentially, I was getting licensed and learning how to operate a financial planning practice from from 19. So I got my seven when I was 19. I did my CFP when I was 25. You know, I, I love and thank my father for giving me the greatest competitive advantage. You know, in in I think the profession, which is you know primarily why I've been able to do a lot of what I've been able to do at my age and and rack up 15 years of experience. But working with a parent is extraordinarily difficult. And it's just this weird mix of love and fear. I don't think moving home, I don't, I don't think living and working with a parent after school at 24 is, is a really good combination, especially when, you know, the love of your life is, is going through her own hell in law school in New York City. And, you know, you're just all kinds of confused. And I think you, you then just make enemies out of the, the one person that's, you know, kind of pulling all your strings at that particular moment. And that was a really dark and sad part all those years ago. And so eventually you got to some point of saying, okay, I've got a few years of experience. I, I just got to get out from under my father's practice and, 
and go and do my own thing. Yeah, it was actually probably more him being an awesome dad and realizing despite, you know, his own goals and dreams of having an heir apparent or wanting to see a multi-generational practice to realize who is, you know, he said to me, who am I to stand in the way of my child's goals and dreams of, and ambitions? Like I have to get over the fact that if you fall flat on your face and be, be and keep in mind, I come from a family of New Yorkers. Like they're, they're fully, fully well aware of like where I want to go and what I want to do. Yeah. You know, they've, they've all sharpened their saws here in the Northeast. And yeah, he was like, why don't you take a few months here? Still working, but why don't you take a few months to figure out whether or not you want to remain here or take, you know, do a reverse LeBron James, you know, take your talents to Manhattan. And I just instantly said, I will be moving to Manhattan and try and find some people to interview with. Thanks. Thanks for the permission. (laughs) And then October, then by, you know, that was, that was March, 2000. Eight by October 2008, just in time for the sky to fall in the economy, I was in New York City, again, drinking out of a fire hose. So what advice would you give young advisors like looking to get started and become a planner today? There's also say like, what, what do you know now that you wish you knew then 10 plus years ago? Well, I had, I had the good fortune of not you know, of, of, of having what I call runway kind of given to me, like, again, a big competitive advantage is I, I didn't necessarily have to worry about finding a place to, to quote unquote, earn your stripes or learn the business or get comfortable with who you are as an advisor and get credentialed and all of that and worry about a paycheck, especially since you're, you're working at home and you're, you're kind of on the family dollar, so to speak. But if I strip that away and in the conversations I have with a lot of young advisors that call up on, on a monthly, if not weekly basis to take me up on the opportunity to you know, ask what you're asking me. It's create as much, you know, the biggest challenge for you is going to be creating the runway that you need to really be able to play this game. And the thing that bothers me, I think most about the profession is that we still haven't really solved the recruitment problem, which is, you know, more than likely you're going to end up in a sales culture more than likely you're not going to succeed there because at no fault of your own. I mean, I just, I just don't think it's engineered to do that to succeed anymore. And more than likely, you're you're going to become distraught and fed up. And and if you flip that on its head and say, no, you know, I'm I'm going to go here to the sales call. Like if that's the only way in for you, like it, it, in other words, it's hard to find like that awesome RIA with a, an amazing you know recruitment program that will grow you over five yeah. to seven years. I mean, that's a fa- that's just a fantasy. Uh, they exist. They exist. But good luck finding them. You know, more than likely, you're going online, going to you know wirehouse.com, looking at you know, job postings, realizing, you know, you could probably get hired as, as a junior FA or a new recruit in almost any city across America to go try and call up your uncle, your mom and your dad and get them as clients, raise 10 million in two years or get out. And I want young advisors to know that's okay. That's okay. Just, just, there's a game you can play here. And it's very bold of me to say that, look, if, if, if they're going to continue to run a model that doesn't work, maybe you can use that model to your advantage. And you need to, instead of focusing on your sales goals, focus on, you know, listening to your content and becoming a student of the industry, start equipping yourself with the knowledge you need to be an advisor. So, you know, if they're not promoting getting your CFP from day one, go get the books and start doing that outside. Like if you really want to be an advisor, you're going to have to work just a little bit harder, given the fact that more than likely the recruitment program you're in is not going to pan out for you. So go get, what are you doing outside of those, you know, cold calling hours to basically be that next candidate at the firm you want to work at? 
or be so bold as to go out on your own because you've already started your blog because you've already started to think about who you want to market to. And now you can go play, you know, be, basically it's like being one step ahead of your sales manager, right? It's, it's a little, <laughs> it's, it's a little de- you know, it's a, yeah, boss. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah okay. It's a little devious. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are HR professionals at, at big banks and warehouses that are absolutely cringe with what I'm saying, but I, I, Feel absolutely no remorse. You're you're running you're running a system that that doesn't work and doesn't help the profession. So get gamey with it. You know, get a little get a little dirty with this and give yourself the runway that you need to evolve into an advisor that's capable of developing business ultimately, assuming that's that's the kind of advisor you want to be, that entrepreneur or entrepreneur. And if not, maybe even figure out that you're cool working at Vanguard or Fidelity and servicing amazing people and providing value that way. Or Look, if this is not for you, at least you gave it a good shot. You don't have any regrets about the experience you got. And at least you figured out while you were still young that this wasn't for you. You actually maybe found out what it is you do love to do and you go do that. So what comes next for Bonafide Wealth from here? So I think we continue to scale up as far as bringing in the right types of clients. I think we'll inevitably, I mean, the technology gets so good and just continue as we lose capacity, we gain it back yeah. with technology. So that's pretty interesting. But I think ultimately the day I can't deliver the same type of service that I'm currently giving my clients, and I and I don't want to scale my business to a billion dollar RIA, at least not now anyways. I've done I've done a lot of those things in in other capacities. I want to work with a great set of clients and a rather robust practice of people I love to work with. And I want to continue going down the media road and the uh, content road. I think there's a whole avenue to explore here when it comes to delivering financial education and literacy to the masses. I think it, you, I think I can make money doing that. I think it can supplement the marketing I'm already doing for my firm. And I don't think it has to come at the cost of the, the value and service that I'm giving my clients in my wealth management practice. So as we wrap up, this is a podcasts about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success often means different things to different people. So, you know, you're on this incredibly successful trajectory, 600,000 plus of GDC after 10 years and like compounding seems to be accelerating from here. So you're, you're, you're certainly on the, on the track or have already arrived at, at building a successful business. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I think it comes down to my family being happy and it comes down to my own happiness. I'm of course happy when my family is happy. I would define it as not having to worry about money in the context of being able to support a, and this is obviously subjective lifestyle, me and my family deem to be comfortable. You know, I'm not trying to make a billion dollars here and, and have yachts all over the world, but I'd like to make sure that my kids can not have to worry about certain things that maybe I did or my parents did, that we can travel and enjoy a summer vacation like I did as a child. And my wife and I can feel like we're financially independent. And all this uh, student loan debt we took on has been more than worth it. I know we already feel that way to a great degree. So if you take all of those things and, and put them in a box and put a bow on it. That's success to me. It can all be quantified. I doubt I'll share that <laughs> with you or anyone, but we're on our way there. And that puts a smile on my face and I'm able to help people. And I'll, you know, my dad always said, this business is having the heart of a social worker and the brain of a capitalist. That's, that's one awesome job. If you ask me. 
I like that. This business is having the heart of a social worker and the brain of a capitalist. So I've got to ask then one follow-up question. You know, you, you've kind of said it sounds like you, you've got a pretty clear target in your head. Like there is this financial independence number when you're really at the point now where you, you, you no longer have to work for the, the money. Is there a plan for what, what comes next when you hit that crossover point? <laughs> I haven't really thought about terminal value, you know, if I'm taking it all the way to the end here, like where does Doug like say goodbye to his practice? I don't think, I don't think I need to. <laughs> it's, you know, I kind of put a question mark at the end of that, you know, and I'm so very much, you know, in love with where it's gotten to at this point, given that like, I'm really in the lives of clients right now. We're going through so much. It It, it is a nice, it's a little bit of an echo chamber, but it's also a nice feedback loop, right? I think that's really cool. As far as hitting that goal and, and, and then what happens, I probably start to maximize the work-life balance. I have two young daughters and like, you know, being the son of a, an advisor, my dad was able to go to all of my sports games, was able to go to all of the big things in my life and go on vacation. That never got in the way. I want to be able to do that two times, twofold. You know, I, I, I just want to be able to be there for them and enjoy them and watch them grow and turn them into their own version of being a superstar and not have to worry about, again, you know, it's every parent's dream for their kids not to have to worry about uh, things that we necessarily do. So if I can do that, that, that I think that's what it looks like in, in a very uh, high level sense. All right. Well, very cool. Well, uh, I know we'll, we'll check back with you in five or 10 years to see how you're doing on that trajectory or if you're there and, and what actually came next. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll have a coffee farm and you know be be brewing my own or roasting my own coffee. That seems to be a passion these days. Well, fantastic! You know, financial planner coffee is a I think a niche opportunity unto itself. You might see something by the end of the year. <laughs> we'll see. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Douglas, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It was a pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.